Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by The Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman. I'm a contributor to The Bulwark. I'm a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center and a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. And I'm joined in this podcast by my partner in all things grand strategy and less grand, uh, Elliot Cohen, the Arlie Burke Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I should have said the uh, Robert Osgood Chair at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Elliot, welcome. Well, thank you, uh, Eric. Always good to be with you. And uh, today, our guest is a colleague of mine at CSIS. Uh, this is Char- Dr. Charles Adel, uh, known as Charlie. He is the inaugural Australia chair at CSIS. He's had a career at uh, the U.S. Naval War College, where he was a professor in the strategy department, which uh, I also had the, the honor of serving in. Uh, he's taught at the University of Sydney. Um, he's been at the Wilson Center. He served on the Department of State Policy Planning staff from 2015 to 2017. He's the author of Nation Builder, John Quincy Adams and the Grand Strategy of the Republic. And he's the co-author, together with my size colleague, Hal Brands, of Lessons of Tragedy, Statecraft, and World Order. I I have to say there's a little bit of discomfort in all this because uh, both Charlie and Eric have uh, PhDs in diplomatic history from Yale. And, and, Truth is, I, I went to a rather different kind of university um, in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Charlie also was an undergraduate at Yale, where, where he tells me that really the, the, the honor that he really cherishes is that he was a classmate of Ron DeSantis. Charlie, welcome to Shield of the Republic. Well, thanks for that uh, winsome introduction uh, there, Elliot. Uh, you know, as to uh, school rivalries, hey, no one can be perfect, uh, but we all learn as we go. And as classmates, you know, we have who we have. Yeah, that's that's very true. It's it is great to have you um, have you with us. I'll open up and then hand it over to Eric. You know, obviously, uh, I mean, you're an Asianist. You've spent time in Beijing. Uh, you've spent a lot of time in Australia. Uh, you worked a lot of Asian issues when you were at policy planning at, at State. Of course, we're all preoccupied right now with the Ukraine war, and you've given some thought. You've actually wrote a, an article on uh, the American purpose about this, but what are some of the implications and lessons of the Ukraine conflict for Indo-Pacific security issues? Maybe you could launch us there and then, Eric, like I said, you could continue the interrogation thereafter. Uh, Well, I'm happy to, but uh, if you feel intimidated with two uh, Yale diplomatic historians, let me say how overawed I am to be speaking with two of my intellectual heroes. Uh, You know, I love the podcast, but I've been reading both of your work for for years and, and years and years. There, there's an age discrepancy between the three of us, but it's, it's a real honor uh, to be on with you guys. Um, Elliot, your question about uh, the implications of Ukraine for the Indo-Pacific. You know, as we're watching this play out, um, for those of us who spend a lot, even most of our time, kind of looking at what is happening with China and the Indo-Pacific, the question, of course, immediately leads to mind, uh, is this precedent? Is this coordinated between Beijing and Moscow? Is this precedent for other aggressive moves around Asia? And 
the the point of the article that I read with uh, my friend John Lee, a terrific Australian uh, thinker, policymaker, was to take a look at what was happening at the very early stages uh, of the unfolding crisis. And to say, for the most part, you know, I think the administration uh, after February 24th has really done pretty darn well in terms of establishing kind of a broad-based coalition, uh, giving some flexibility within it, moving forward, pushing back, winning the information war. Uh, but we can also say uh, that none of their actions deterred Russia ahead of time, uh, and nor have they stopped Russia from doing what they're doing at this point. So the question that we tried to play with here uh, is, how can we build on what is happening uh, in Ukraine, uh, sharpen it, and begin to apply it to the Indo-Pacific? Uh, and so, you know, in terms of ideas, uh, you know, just a couple uh, that I think are actually uh, potentially useful and that have real practical implications. Uh, so. Uh, let me sprint through them here. The first one was, uh, we know the administration has been playing a very good intelligence game, uh, constantly uh, putting out uh, information to let Putin know that we have read his playbook, we're advanced communicating it, and unlike where we've been over the past couple of years, we're ahead of him in the information uh, battle. And I think that if you begin to look at what's happening with China in the Indo-Pacific, uh, particularly as they build up forces, particularly as they use not little green men like Putin used in Ukraine, but oftentimes little blue men, right? A disguised uh, Chinese fishermen that are under command and control of the PLA. Uh, there is more that we can do in the information space uh, with our allies and partners in broadcasting what Beijing's up to. You know, second point is uh, sanctions, uh, which have been more forceful than any of us would have anticipated. There was an awful lot of interagency churn uh, to get these teed up, to have a menu so that different allies could go at different paces and different scale and scope of these. Uh, there is no work that's being done on this with regards to China. And it's 10 times more difficult because, of course, the interwoven nature of our economies uh, with the Chinese economy. So one of the recommendations we made is there's some both internal work that we can start doing and some coordinating mechanisms we can do to begin thinking about what that menu of options might look like for China. Uh, you know, a third one, as we've seen during the pandemic, but even more during this crisis, is that when something happens, nations find themselves oftentimes without the critical materials that they need, be they medical supplies or fuel or munitions. And so thinking of how to stockpile the right type of things before a crisis is really, I think, a lesson that's quite applicable uh, in Asia. And that really leads, I think, to the more kind of forward-leaning defense suggestions that we made. Uh, number one, uh, look, uh, whether or not Ukraine is getting enough stuff now is also clear that they did not have enough when the crisis began. And if we look at Taiwan, if we look at the Philippines, if we look at Vietnam, of course, the military questions are quite different because we're talking about seascapes and not just land invasion routes. But the question becomes, do they have enough capabilities to make an advance on them as painful as possible, helping to either deter Chinese actions or degrade significantly anything that they would do to kind of slow down the march? And the final point uh, that we would just make here is, uh, look, in the aftermath of Russia's unprovoked invasion into Ukraine, 
we have seen the Biden administration, I think, taking quite forceful actions along with its NATO partners to shore up NATO's eastern flank, uh, right? To make sure that both they can make sure the supply routes moving into Ukraine uh, are there, but also to make sure that there is no spillover effect onto NATO. And in the Indo-Pacific region, we've been talking about posture rethinks for a long time, uh, rebalances, pivots. Uh, you know, the administration came out with a posture uh, review in December, and it was so-so. Uh, it basically said, we're going to do some in Northern Australia, maybe some more in Guam, and didn't say the other parts. If there were ever a time to begin to accelerate some of these efforts, along with pushing our closest allies, like Japan, to spread out across the Southern Island chain, Australia started moving more rapidly up into the Northern Territories. These are some of the moves that I think would make sure to forestall and preclude any similar actions by Beijing. Could I just ask one question, and then I promise Eric I'll shut up. Just one, Elliot? Uh, well, there'll be more later. Um, so isn't the biggest difference between the two theaters, fundamentally the character of the client that we want to, or ally, that we want to protect? I think everybody is just astounded by the courage and the resolution of the Ukrainians. And they're really, their willingness to fight to the death. You know, my what, what I've said to people is uh, the, the motto of New Hampshire, which, you know, they have on their license plates is live free or die. And that, that has felt like an empty phrase to a lot of people for a long time. But it's not an empty phrase. I mean, that's, that's what the Ukrainians are living. Are the Taiwanese a live free or die kind of people? Because doesn't it all in the end rest on that? And with that, I really will stop. No, it's it's a really critical question. And I think that uh, the answer is we don't know. Um, but I think that the effect of what is happening in Ukraine is having a lightning charge reaction around the world. And you can see it across Asia and even in places like Taiwan. So, uh, you know, one of the polls that I was reading, and I'm, I'm always pretty wary of polling uh, numbers as hard truth, but prior to the invasion, of Ukraine, uh, you know, when asked, uh, Taiwanese were asked, you know, were, would you be willing to fight to defend uh, Taiwan? And the numbers were, I won't say anemic, but they weren't certainly inspiring, uh, you know, around 50-50, maybe less. Uh, that same poll was asked three weeks into this conflict, and the numbers had shot way past that and up because I think they have been inspired by what they have seen over there. Uh, and, you know, the hope is, uh, I think, that watching the Ukrainians resist will galvanize others to do the same. You know, the, one of the differences, uh, though, Elliot, that I pick, take in a slightly different direction is, uh, maybe it's a similar direction, is generational divides. Uh, I, I am not as familiar with what that looks like for younger Ukrainians versus older Ukrainians and how the Slavic or the Russian ties uh, matter as much to them. I mean, I think it's actually been quite interesting to watch Zelensky speaking repeatedly, obviously in Russian, not only to his own people, but to Russians themselves, asking them to protest what their government is doing. In Taiwan, I can say that there is a real generational divide. And for those who are younger, uh, the fact that uh, they have watched very carefully what's happening in Beijing. They watched extraordinarily carefully what happened in Hong Kong 
right? Giving lie to the fact that there is uh, two systems, one country. There's just one system and it's a boot stamping on multiple entities. And so I think that there is really no appetite for becoming another, you know, depressed, deprived, stepped on colony of Beijing. Whether or not that translates into fighting, I mean, part of this we can only see by how they respond to Ukraine. And part of this, hopefully, we never have to see if there actually were an action taken by Beijing. Well, Charlie, I certainly agree with you about replenishing munition stocks and agree with you in terms of your assessment of the, the interim global posture review that the Biden administration announced, which was really pretty much of a nothing burger by by design and by their own admission. I mean, they, they were not prepared in the first year to really, I think, take on those issues. I, I would say that both of those things are going to require probably a larger top line on the defense budget than the one we saw the administration uh, drop in in April. But I wonder if we could talk a little bit about what lessons China might have learned from this. I mean, you were largely talking in your comments and in the piece you wrote with John Lee about lessons we should take, that the Biden, things the Biden administration should do to position itself better in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, two of my colleagues at CSBA, who you know well, Toshi Yoshihara and Evan Montgomery, uh, have a piece this week in, in War on the Rocks in which they speculate about what some of the Chinese lessons may be learned, and they really put emphasis on three of them. One is nuclear threats work to make the U.S. and its allies wary of military intervention, so uh, threaten nuclear weapons use early and, and often. Blockade uh, the island completely so that any action to resupply Taiwan becomes a matter that could escalate and make those nuclear threats more powerful and decapitate the regime right from the outset. Don't let the Taiwanese do what Zelensky has done, whether it's President Tsai or somebody else. What about that? I mean, those are things that all sort of play to developments we see already taking place in uh, Chinese military thinking and planning. What if they just take these lessons to heart and really double down on a lot of the things they've been doing to make it uh, kind of counter-intervention capabilities and make it harder for us uh, to come to uh, Taiwan's aid and, and uh, live up to the requirements of the Taiwan Relations Act, which is domestic law after all? Chinese PLA is a learning organization, and they learn pretty quickly. And when we create problems for them, they're generally pretty adept at figuring out solutions. Uh, and if we look at, in fact, the origins of their defense policy, this anti-access area denial, right, to kind of make it much more difficult for the U.S. and its allies to flow forces in, that can be traced very specifically to the fact that on the Taiwan crisis in 96, 97, when the U.S. put two uh, aircraft carriers into the Straits, that was the problem set that they then trained all of their military modernization around. You know, stepping back, Eric, uh, to your question, look, there are kind of one of two ways that we can think about this. Uh, so one is the, the more optimistic from our point of view is that, you know, maybe they've been chastened, right? Uh, embracing Putin hasn't turned out as well uh, as they thought. Launching an invasion is more challenging. Uh, doctrine doesn't matter all that much. And this is before you even get to a seaborne landing. Uh, so maybe some uh, chastening of how they thought of this. On the other hand, uh, as you rightly pointed out by talking about Toshi and Evan's article, well, there's some positive lessons that they might draw out of this. I would actually go a little bit further and say that because this is 
a live situation because I don't think the, the, the lessons have been written yet into Chinese doctrine or procurement or political decisions. Uh, we want them to obviously shape towards decisions that we think would be more helpful for us, less helpful for them. And to my mind, you know, there's this debate going on right now uh, among those of us who will kind of watch the Indo-Pacific. Uh, either those who are Asianists first, right? Don't do anything U.S. and allies in Ukraine because that just takes away from what you can be doing uh, in Asia. And that's where the big game is, as opposed to those who say, no, 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 these are theaters that are connected. To get to your question, I think the lesson that we really want them to draw is things are not breaking in your direction, Beijing. Uh, because when they feel that things are breaking in their direction, some of the ways that you listed coming from Toshi and Evan's article, that would make them feel that the wind is at their back and that they're playing in a more conducive environment. So, uh, you know, I've, I've tried to make a list of this. Let me kind of spin off a couple. All right. The things that they would think Beijing would think were breaking in their way. Um, uh, one, that Russia wins uh, in Ukraine. Uh, right, that it, use of force really does work. Um, two, that the U.S. redeploys massively away from the Indo-Pacific. That would mean things look favorable in their neighborhood. Three, the, the Ukrainians collapse. Uh, four, over time, our resolve to punish China, uh, sorry, to punish Russia weakens. Uh, sanctions become less assertive. Uh, the types of weaponry that we're giving to them, uh, you know, the pipeline slows down a lot. Um, uh, we could go on on this, right? That the neutrality of key players like India uh, holds and maybe even expands. I mean, I, I can come up with a list of things that would encourage Beijing to think that things are breaking in their way. And the reason that I'm listing these out is because I think it's really important that we think about which things Beijing might calculate are breaking in their direction. And then we work to undercut each and every one of those because we want to make the argument that things are not breaking in your way on this front. Isn't there, Charlie, uh, I think two other angles where, in which, well, three actually, uh, where this could have a positive effect. So the first is the United States, after a series of stumbles going back now decades, shows it can lead an alliance, shows that it has terrific intelligence, uh, and actually does show a certain amount of resolve. Secondly, that the Europeans have decided to kind of resume acting as sort of security players in a way. And by the way, it's been interesting to me that as the Europeans have had conversations with the Chinese in this, that they have not been in the direction of amity and cooperation at all. It's been quite hostile. And then, you know, the third thing is, I think they it's fair to say that although they're not allies of the Russians, they're certainly aligned with them. And as somebody put it, you know, they're standing back to back with the Russians, just sort of expecting the Russians to hold down Europe and to some extent to distract uh, the United States while they deal with the Indo-Pacific. So it's actually a little bit like the, frankly, a little bit like the Axis relationship during World War II, a comparison I make advisedly. But the thing that they have to be thinking about is, you know, have they crawled into bed with this decrepit, incompetent, losing, uh, failing state, which, you know, had an economy maybe little, sort of the size of South Korea's, but it's going to have considerably less than that uh, over the next over the next few years. And do you think that and th those three things put together 
will shape their appetite for risk and their their willingness to be aggressive? Yes, but I go further than you, uh, because I think that that puts too much of the policy levers uh, in their hands and not ours. Uh, so let me just kind of build on each one of those that you said. In terms of this has revived alliance planning in a way that we haven't seen before, that's something worth building on. Uh, you know, we are not going to have a NATO in uh, Asia, no matter what China says, no matter what threats. The question, though, is do we have certain habits of cooperation that we can bring into the Indo-Pacific, starting with the Quad, that begin to look more like regularized meetings, defense interoperability that we've seen honed for so long within NATO? You know, one of the reasons this menu of sanctions went up so quickly is because we've had seven decades worth of experience of working those NATO channels. You know, your second point um, about um, the Europeans becoming more assertive security players on their own, uh, absolutely, right? Germany kind of as first among equals here, all of a sudden $100 billion worth of spending. The picture is very different in Indo in the Indo-Pacific. So even if we talk about kind of a deteriorating security situation, uh, we see anemic growth in defense spending uh, by every country, comma, with the exception of Australia uh, at this point. The Japanese are slowly getting there. Uh, Prime Minister Kishida said he wants to get there further. The new uh, president of South Korea has signaled the same. The Indians are somewhat there. The question, though, is I was just on uh, doing an interview with some friends in Singapore, and they said, well, aren't you worried about an arms buildup? Uh, you know, isn't this bad for the region? And I said, absolutely, because China has been building up their arms for more than a decade and it's uneven. So now the question is, can we get back towards a semblance of balance, which might deter further acts of aggression? Uh, you know, the third one, though, that you mentioned, I actually think is the most interesting policy question, right? The China-Russia alignment. So a lot of the discussion has been framed around uh, is this been a good choice for China, yay or nay? Uh, you know, I, I think we can point in both directions from how Beijing might think about this. But I think a more interesting policy question from our perspective is, do we want to give China space to be a responsible player here, right? To step away uh, from Russia, to help those sanctions tighten a little bit, to play, as you can see, their public pronouncements to play more of a peacemaking role in this, which they've clearly shifted their statements to. Or because they have clearly made their bed, they have clearly embraced an autocrat, they've clearly, if not necessarily having advanced intelligence on what was going to happen, although we don't know the answer to that, they have been aiding and abetting, not only in the disinformation space, but also in buying and purchasing not only fuel, but foodstuffs. So the policy question is, if they're such a bedfellow of Vladimir Putin, do we want to, for lack of more diplomatic phrase, rub their nose in it and make sure that they are tarred with the Russian uh, you know, ankle uh, weight as much as possible? Charlie, I want to take you in the direction of uh, the comment you made about alliance building in the Indo-Pacific, and you mentioned the Quad. You've been for a long time a strong advocate of U.S.-Australian partnership. You mentioned Australia um, putting more more resources uh, into defense. I, I want to ask you about one of the, I would say, really major policy initiatives the Biden administration has undertaken, which was the announcement last uh, fall, I guess it was, or late last summer, of the 
Australia, UK, US trilateral partnership to build nuclear powered uh, submarines for Australia. And now a new addition to that list of tasks for that partnership to fill capability gaps is is hypersonics uh, in the wake of a successful uh, U.S. hypersonic test. Talk a little bit about uh, the origins of of this, how how it came about, what its you know prospects are in in your view. I mean, I, I was very struck by the fact that in the last year of the Trump administration, which you know made a fetish of how quote, tough it was on China, that uh, in a period of time when the Chinese were really beating the crap diplomatically out of Australia, uh, because Australia had had the temerity to suggest there should be an international investigation of the origins of the COVID pandemic, uh, that the U.S. really sat back and did almost nothing. And, you know, the Biden administration comes in and announces this new big initiative. So talk a little bit, talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, um, I'm going to take you off on a tangent, and I'll come back to uh, the answer, if I may. Uh, So after the economic hammer came down on Australia, right, from China, because they proposed this independent international investigation into the origins of COVID, right? And so you have to understand that Australia was over a barrel. Uh, 40%, 40% of Australian trade prior to the pandemic went north uh, to China, mostly in commodities. But that's an extraordinary amount. I mean, you know, four, more than fourfold more than the United States. Uh, so when the economic hammer began coming down, I can tell you the Australian government had already been taking a series of, you know, pretty assertive uh, actions to protect their own sovereign capabilities, their own sovereign independence. But things began to accelerate. And the large muscle movement, uh, in my mind, is not AUKUS, uh, right? The Australia, UK, US uh, trilateral partnership. Um, It actually precedes that. It's the Australian Defense Strategic Update, which came out in July of 2020. Uh, And Australia generally releases defense white papers uh, every now and then. And this was so close to the last one they released in 2016 that they say, you know what, we're not going to take the time to do a full one. We're just going to issue a quick update. And the reason we're doing so is because conditions in our near abroad have deteriorated not only quickly, but more quickly than any of us had anticipated. And we no longer have a 10-year runway to make our decisions. And because of that, we need to reorient our defense priorities away from partnering with the United States in the Middle East and more to our own neighborhood. And the way that we're going to do that is acquire more lethal assets that can push the Chinese further away. That is the origin story behind AUKUS. It's also the origin story behind not only hypersonics, but an entire strike complex that is in kind of nascent liftoff right now in Australia. So I think that's the background, that they wanted more lethal capabilities, able to make themselves a harder target and push the Chinese further away, while simultaneously hedging against a unsteady United States by doubling down on us and pulling us into the region along with them. So the specific AUKUS agreement, right, uh, where they undiplomatically, uh, I heard you guys talking about this, threw the French overboard, uh, was simply a recognition uh, that they needed 
better capabilities. And the only way that you would get that is through subsurface nuclear uh, submarines, uh, right? That can range further, that are quieter, and that give the Chinese no end of conniption bits because their anti-submarine warfare is not good. And if their strike, uh, their missiles continue to proliferate and you can take things out, you can't take things out that you don't know where they are, right? So this is part of the deterrent equation. Uh, so that's the major muscle movement here on the nuclear propelled submarines. Uh, but one of the debates that we've seen breaking out in Australia for both good reasons and somewhat uh, unfair political reasons is, uh, thanks mate, those are gonna come online in like 15 to 20 years. Our Collins class submarines are about to be decommissioned. Uh, how do you exactly suggest that we mine the gap? Because we don't have a 15 or 20 year problem, we have a five to 10 year problem. So, you know, uh, I think part of that is the impetus that you saw now for an advanced capabilities, uh, which is the second work stream within AUKUS. Um, it's not particularly well-defined, uh, even if we can say that the work streams are AI, quantum, cyber, probably cyber offensive, um, and uh, undersea, meaning comma, not just submarines, radar, sensors, unmanned underwater vehicles. But now we're beginning to see more things on top of that. And the two that I uh, would point to are one, this announcement about hypersonics being co-developed and co-produced by uh, AUKUS, by uh, London, by Canberra, and by the US. But this is only the tip of the iceberg because the Aussies have said that they have already put a billion dollars into building a strike complex. Sorry, billion dollars Australian. It's not quite as much, but still a lot of coin. Uh, and they anticipate that this will grow to one to $200 billion in producing missiles in Australia within the next decade. Uh, so this is big. The question is how quickly it can happen, who's gonna build them, and whether or not it's brought online just for them or within an alliance framework uh, for it. Charlie, I was wondering if we could use this to get you talking a little bit more broadly about the Australians as allies. Uh, so if I can just riff for a moment. I, I've been going back and forth to Australia for. Uh, over 25 years. I'm, I'm very fond of the country. Um, and I've worked in government with Australians. And just a, you know, a couple of little uh, anecdotes, which for me capture what Australians are like. I remember during the Obama administration, one senior official said to me, I forget what the, the issue was. He said, you know, we've been reduced to leading from behind, which is, uh, you know, sort of what they've frequently find themselves doing vis-a-vis -vis us. I remember as well uh, that literally the very last night of the Bush administration, uh, the Australian ambassador had about a dozen American officials who had worked particularly closely with Australia over to his residence for a, a gala dinner. It was a very quintessentially Australian gesture uh, at a you know at a time when nobody particularly cared about anybody who had served in the, the Bush administration. And I you know I sometimes have a feeling that. Australians minimize their own importance sometimes, and Americans still have a bit of the crocodile Dundee uh, image. But in fact, you know, my feeling about them is this is a very sophisticated country. Uh, it's a, quite a sophisticated military. They've got some extremely acute thinkers. And just, you know, the one last anecdote was another conversation actually was at the Munich Security Conference with the very senior Australian who was there, who was very engaged in the discussions on Ukraine and was very forward-leaning. And I said, wow, that's really impressive. He said, look, he said, my country has only faced an existential threat once. That was in 1942. 
and faced that threat because the Asian security order had fundamentally broken down. And the Asian security order had fundamentally broken down because the European security order had fundamentally broken down. I thought, wow, that's, you know, quite, quite impressive and I think correct. So with that as a, a prologue, could you just talk about the Australians as an ally? Yeah, uh, they're terrific and we could use more allies like them. Uh, I mean, that, that's the short answer to this, that, um, look, uh, to rewind a couple of years, uh, you know, I, I got to serve at the tail end of the Obama administration, and I was constantly talking with all of our allies and partners uh, around the region. And when we would talk about the South China Sea, uh, I would say, look, it's uh, just really a problem. And they'd say, absolutely. And I'd say, we really have to do something about it. And they'd say, absolutely. I'd say, so here's where we're going to go. And they'd say, right behind you, mate, but maybe a little bit further back. Uh, and that has that dynamic has totally changed in the last five years. And that's both because of what China has been doing inside of Australia within the domestic polity, but also what they've been doing closer to them. And, you know, when we were living in Australia, we didn't say this. I mean, we just got back. We were living uh, down in Sydney for three and a half amazing years uh, when CSIS uh, offered me the job here of Australia chair. Uh, my wife told me I could only take the job if I promised to bring the family back at least once a year. Um, but the thing that kind of turned everyone's head on fire while we were down there is the Vanuatu story, right? Where there was discussion about whether or not the Chinese were setting up a dual use facility in Vanuatu. Uh, we've seen over the last month, uh, discussion has returned now with the Solomon Islands, right? Only, you know, 1500 miles away from Australia. And when I was there watching this debate, exactly what you said, Elliot, is what I heard from the mouths of the government, uh, from the opposition, and in, even from the government of New Zealand, that this having a potentially hostile power set up on our northern approaches puts us back into 1942, right before the Battle of the Coral Sea. This is an existential moment for us because it means that we could be cut off from the rest of you, having to fight on our own for a long time. So uh, I think they've gone from, in some ways, uh, our very close ally, but not willing to be as assertive as we were maybe five, 10 years ago, to leading the pack because they feel the danger so much more intently. And frankly, educating us and others about a lot of the challenges. They were the first movers, right, on Huawei and 5G. Uh, but again, you know, when I say we could use more allies like them, what I think has been the extraordinary utility of Australia's debate here in Washington is they have said we see a deteriorating we see a deteriorating security situation, uh, and we are going to do more about it ourselves and with you, and frankly with others. And that is the model that we want for all of our allies and partners at this point. I, actually, I just one quick correction, then over to you, Eric. What this friend of mine said is we've been reduced to following from in front. So in other words, they, you know, they would, mm -hmm. where they would take the lead, but as, as they have been willing to do, which is quite remarkable. You know, Elliot, one, one more thing, if you don't mind, uh, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, I know you guys often talk about the use of history. I think about this all the time. Uh, you know, we were just talking a minute or two ago about the defense strategic update. Uh, and I actually do want to key in on this because when the prime minister released it, it was not the defense minister. Uh, he got up and made a speech and he said, look, I am haunted by, as everyone should be who has read the history, the story of the 1930s, 
And what I see as the story is democracies insufficiently aligned, too poorly armed, and not willing to push back against aggressive uh, maneuvers by authoritarian powers. Now, I'm a historian, at least two of the three of us are historians, actually all of us are historians here, but this is not history for history's sake, right? This is an argument about how he reads the past in order for telling Australians what he wants them to do proactively moving forward. Charlie, I'm glad you've raised history because I want us to to dig into that a little bit here before we become totally consumed with the vulgar present. You've written a, a really brilliant book, Nation Builder, John Quincy Adams and the Grand Strategy of the Republic. There, there are a lot of people who have invoked John Quincy Adams recently. In fact, there's even now a Quincy Institute. And that Quincy Institute essentially has taken his name in part because they're fond of quoting his famous July 4th, I think it was an 1823 uh, speech, 1821, in which he talks about the United States not seeking you know, dragons ab- abroad to slay. And this is an argument that they advance in the name of what they call a policy of restraint, uh, as opposed to a policy of forward defense and uh, active engagement with, with allies. Is their reading of John Quincy Adams correct, or would you read him differently? Uh, it, do you even have to ask? It's it's a hundred percent wrong. I don't have to ask because I know the answer, but I don't know that the listeners know the answer. Look, it's a hundred percent wrong, uh, but it's it's su- it's such a usefully cherry picked quotation uh, that uh, you know we always have to be careful about putting kind of contemporary actions into the mouths of historical figures. But let's just take a look at the historical records of John Quincy Adams, because I think he was anything but a restrainer, uh, despite how one might cherry pick that quote. Look, he was never shy in his career about pushing American values or about pushing uh, and prompting the use of military power abroad, particularly to project American power into lawless and dangerous areas. He was constantly a proponent of American expansion, uh, not only across the North American continent, but as a foothold to project forward power even further abroad into the Pacific and into Asia. You know, he also, uh, I would say, was someone who constantly talked about understanding how strategy actually works, that you need uh, objectives, sure, but you need the resources to align with them. So actually, that particular speech, America Goes Not Abroad in Search of Monsters to Destroy, is his cautionary tale that at that particular moment, sending up U.S. anemic forces to aid the Greek rebellion against the Ottoman Turks would not help America in its dealings in North America as it was contending with the reach of European powers into not only South America, but across the American continent. That was his caution that you don't do these two things aligned. In fact, his inaugural address as president, he calls for more uh, timber in Florida to be cut down because our commitments are out of line with our resources and we need more timber for a bigger Navy to project power further abroad. Uh, Adams is a lot of things. He's a polymath in just about every way. A restrainer, he was not. He was pretty ruthless in terms of his view of, you know, you mentioned expansion across the continent. That wasn't an empty continent. And if you look at, you know, his, say, negotiations with the British at the end of uh, the War of 1812, he's quite uncompromising about what's going to happen to the Indian nations in North America um, and quite unsentimental about it. 
Um, he becomes more sentimental over time, uh, I would say, because he realizes he actually can't figure out a humane solution to this. I mean, I'll, I can return to the British part, but uh, you know, when he is president and you have proto-secessionist movements uh, by the governor of Georgia uh, moving to push the Creek Indians out of Georgia uh, in contravention to what federal policy is and undercutting uh, American treaties, he tries to think of what he can do to protect the Creeks and realizes he actually can't do anything. The United States doesn't have the resources and is probably going to get into a civil war if he pushes it too hard. Uh, I mean, he laments this and realizes there's nothing he can do about it. Similarly, I'd say, you know, when he's in the cabinet, when he's secretary of state, you know, John Quincy Adams is a lifelong opponent of slavery. He hates it, right? It, it stands in contravention to the principles we espouse in the Declaration of Independence. But the question is, can you do anything about it in 1820, right, during the Missouri crisis? And his answer is no. Uh, because he's not president, one, uh, because the federal power is not big enough, two, and frankly, because there are other and contending priorities, including continental expansion. You know, the coda of his life is fascinating because he is the only president we have who goes back into electoral politics, and he runs as a congressman. I mean, he is a congressman for 17 years for Massachusetts, including like dying on the floor of Congress, and he wages a single-minded campaign against slavery. But he is ruthless, and he's also ruthless about prioritizing at a time about what he thinks the most important issue is at any given moment. Also understood coercive diplomacy and uh, willingness to at least countenance the threat of the use of force. I'm thinking about Florida and the Transcontinental Treaty. You know, this is hardly the stuff of a Quincy Institute defense priorities research paper. Well, I would also say that he understands very variegated, is that a word, uh, you know, policy, uh, which if you are more ideologically inclined, you like to apply the same solution to every problem. Uh, Adams, you know, you point to Florida, that's because the Spanish Empire is toppling and he has no problem leaning on them and countenancing and threatening the use of force. With the British, who have just emerged victorious from the Napoleonic Wars, He's much more delicate in how he approaches the situation. You know, you can have different solutions and different combinations of the diplomatic tools at hand for different problem sets, which, again, is a different and non-ideological approach to things, I think. Charlie, you know, the other um, book that Elliot mentioned when he introduced you was the book that you and Hal Brands have written on the lessons of tragedy, statecraft and, and world order, which I had the privilege of blurbing. Um, it really is a great book. Can you talk a little bit about the importance when we talk of these grand strategic questions of a tragic kind of sensibility uh, when we approach these things? Because I think that's one of the big takeaways from your book. And then I know Elliot's going to bring us home and conclude with uh, some more reflections on on literature. Yeah. And uh, first of all, thank you. Thank you many times over for that lovely uh, blurb that you uh, gave to uh, uh, Hal in my uh, book. Like the... Um, you know, there's like a fake answer and a real answer. The fake answer is like, I convinced Hal to write this entire book because I was a classics major as an undergrad and I like had to prove to my parents uh, that it was like worth it. I could do something useful with this. Uh, the, the real answer though, to your question is we actually took the ancient Greeks as the center point of the book, or really I should say just the starting point because it was our idea that they are, were a society that put tragedy at, it, at their core, 
right? Understanding how quickly things could spin out of control, uh, how bad things could go, and that was what life was. Um, and yet, they had agency in all of this. Uh, and having this tragic mindset that things can really rapidly spin out of control, uh, that yet your decision as a human being and as a community about how you will respond is really at the core of how things go, was we thought uh, missing uh, from our contemporary discussion because we have been doing the same, we have been doing the things we have done for so long, for seven plus decades, that kind of saying over and over again, the liberal international order, the rules-based order, uh, begin to ring hollow, uh, particularly the more removed you are from a true tragedy, where you understand just how bad things were and what actions you need to pay into the system to prevent them from spinning out of control. That's why, you know, when Truman is president, having lived through the 1930s, having lived through the 1940s, it's not that hard of a pitch to the American public to say, we actually have to do more now in peacetime to prevent that from happening. But the longer that we remove ourselves historically from that, because we've been so successful for so long, that logic becomes less compelling. And the argument in the book, at least, is it becomes less compelling at just the wrong time when all the foundations are being eroded. First, those are both they're both marvelous books, and I, uh, I think both Eric and I commend them to everybody who's listening. I think one of the things I've very much enjoyed about our friendship is uh, we also both believe that fiction has things to teach us. You know, we keep on exchanging recommended books. Um, and I think the only time I got seriously annoyed at you was I, I pick up the Washington Post and you've written the essay that I intended to write. You Somehow you'd, you'd thought of it before I did. It annoyed the heck out of me. It's actually a wonderful essay about John Steinbeck's novel the moon is down and uh, could you talk about that because it it's a um it, it's now somewhat obscure although at the time that it was written it was most definitely not obscure and and you, you wrote a wonderful piece about it so could you just say something about that and maybe um and then after that broaden out a little bit to talk about literature and the understanding of politics thank you i mean elliot is the the best reader i know uh, and you gave me, by the way, the recommendation for Maurice Druon's uh, The Accursed Kings. Uh, by the way, for the readers who aren't uh, well-versed in that, this was the inspiration for the Game of Thrones series. And it comes out of like 14th century France. You should read it. It's much bloodier than Game of Thrones. Um, look, uh, on Steinbeck's book, The Moon is Down, uh, which I read a couple of years ago, it's, it's a fabulous uh, little story. It gets spun into a play. But the... Steinbeck writes it because he's doing work for the U.S. government, and he's trying to figure out how he can help not only inspire and propel the U.S., but help the people who are fighting against the Germans. And he writes this little propaganda play, uh, and he gets roundly critiqued uh, for it when it comes out. Uh, he gets panned uh, for it saying that this is totally unrealistic. It's stock figures, black and white. And frankly, uh, why didn't you make the Germans worse, meaner? Could, could you just summarize the plot for people? Sure. Uh, so an unnamed village, it's probably in Norway, gets invaded by an unnamed army. It's definitely the Nazis. Uh, and from that moment on, 
resistance begins to slowly spring up from the town, from the bottom up. And the real central figure is the mayor of the town, who is a representative of democracy and democratic government, uh, who isn't a leader, but will not sell his people down the river and ends up countenancing what they do. And in the end, sorry to give it away, is executed. Uh, but tells the Germans, you don't understand what you're doing because this is not about me. This is about our freedom. And my act of martyrdom is going to inspire them further. What's so interesting is that this book itself gets smuggled across Europe. It's one of the most widely read acts during World War II. Uh, Steinbeck himself gets knighted afterwards by the Norwegian king. And it's seen as in contravention to what his critics said, uh, not untrue, but this is what people had to deal with. Not every single soldier from Germany was a stock cardboard character. These are people as occupiers that they had to live with and deal with and figure out how to get around. This was true to life for them. And what we hear in effect is the Europeans who were occupied by the Nazis saying that this book did more to buck up our courage, tell us more help would be coming and inspire us to fight on than almost any other act of literature during World War II. Yeah, there's a great line. My favorite line in it is when the Germans kind of realize what's happened. One of them says to his uh, commander, the flies have conquered the flypaper. Uh, and so there's sort of the, the futility of it. Could Maybe just to wrap wrap this up, could you say something more broadly about how you think about the relationship between literature and the study of strategy and international politics? We just did a... Um, session with Elizabeth Samet at West Point, uh, who's a literature professor. Hopefully we'll have other other sessions of uh, Shield of the Republic, which will also be focused on that. I'd just like to hear your your view. That's a really big question, Elliot. I, I mean, let me just start from the proposition that uh, one of the reasons I am a historian, or that I guess I'm a policy person who thinks historically, because I'm trained as one, is because I enjoy reading history. Uh, I enjoy reading history, and I learn a ton when I read it. I enjoy reading fiction even more than I enjoy reading history, but for different reasons. Uh, one, I mean, the, liter the literary nature of it, but two, because it gets at elements and predicaments of our condition uh, and helps us paint uh, how people react and also maybe at a more uh, deep level, how we would hope that we would react in certain situations. And it paints characters and individuals. Uh, and so, you know, when I was teaching up at the War College each week, you know, we do like book show and tell. And I would say, look, if you're interested in World War II Pacific, you know, read these histories, uh, read this theory. But also, you know, there's James Jones and you might want to read him uh, a little bit, too. Uh, you might want to. Uh, I think that literature, what it has the ability to do is it helps us kind of expand our imagination uh, and our sense of empathy, which is just how we also want to be thinking about history. I read them back and forth and together. Uh, what, what about the two of you? You know, very, very much the, um, the same thing. I mean, I've always thought, you know, I, I, I love poetry as well. And uh, there's a wonderful poem by Emily Dickinson who said, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Um, success in circuit lies. So in other words, that you, you frequently get at the truth indirectly and with you know poetry which is just concentrated literature in some way you you get these flashes 
of insight into, as you say, the human, uh, the human predicament. And of course, novelists can do things that a conscientious historian can't. I mean, they can, you know, historians can try to wrestle with the question of motivation, but, but honestly, that's a really difficult one to, to meet the, the standards of evidence that we all think historians should cling to. Um, novelists have a freer reign and those insights that they give us are always bound to be provisional, uh, but that doesn't mean that they're not insights. Eric, what your thoughts, and then you should wrap this up. Yeah. I mean, you know, literature, obviously, as Charlie said, is another way that we apprehend truths about the human condition. And I'm not nearly as literarily inclined as, as either of you are, uh, although I enjoy, you know, um, a variety of different uh, genres, uh, including historical uh, fiction. Um, Elliot and I have had multiple conversations about Hilary Mantel's depiction of Thomas uh, Cromwell, although I haven't read the third volume yet, so I have to. But it doesn't um, end well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert! <laughs> but I've learned, but I learned quite a bit about Thomas Cromwell from uh, reading reading Hilary Mantel's novels that I hadn't appreciated. Uh, before and some of the difficulties he faced in serving his master Henry VIII. Uh, so, you know, I yield to you two as as far greater experts than I in this realm. But, uh, but I'm glad that you know on Shield of the Republic we can move from like Wamad Modi to to John Quincy Adams and and all areas you know above and beyond. I mean, Charlie and I actually have I've had actually some interesting discussions about Chinese science fiction, which is probably another. So actually, we talked with Jude Blanchett about it as well. Charlie, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. You've been a great guest on Shield of the Republic, and we hope to have you back um, at some point in the future to check in on the Australia-US-UK relationship, on developments in the Indo-Pacific, and book reviews. <laughs> well, thank you both very much. It's a, it's, a, it's a pleasure. It's a real honor getting to talk to both of you always. And that's it for today's edition of Shield of the Republic. We hope you'll be back and join us uh, again in the future.